0: There's somebody in our midst who actually doesn't own a cell phone. And, and by choice, choosing to belong to a different kind of group. Groups are interesting things to us. We all have need for groups, as witnessed around the coffee over there, the coffee group. We all can gravitate. And, or if you think about your, sports, your favorite sports team, you belong to a group. Even people who, during Coffee and Connection, chose to sit in their seats. Just by being here in this room, you're part of a larger group. No matter where we go in life, we're generally within the dynamic of groups. No matter how introverted or extroverted you are, you're going to be within the dynamic of groups. And when we find meaning within a group, for example, in a church, hopefully that's within Jericho Ridge, you find meaning being here we tend to want to have other people experience what we're experiencing, and so we invite. We're like, this is awesome. Come be a part of this. And then that group begins to grow. And as the group grows, sometimes what we find out about ourselves is that we want other people to belong to our group But we want other people to belong like we belong. We want other people to think and act within our group the way we think and act within our group. Now, I'm not a sociologist, but I can tell you that many good things come out of that. When like-minded and like-practicing people come together, You can set some amazing goals, you can amass uh, resources that you wouldn't otherwise be able to amass on your own, and you can uh, create outcomes for many, many good things as a group of like-minded, like-practicing people. But that's not always the case when like-minded and like-practicing people gather together in one setting including within the church let me give you an example from my personal life. as an ordained minister in uh, the Mennonite Church, I have credentials that a group of people have have said um, you have a calling, you have training, you have um, in layman's terms you have what it, what we think it takes to be a part of our group and to be a leader within our group. I've been a minister in two different Mennonite conferences. Let me try to separate them out for you. The place that I originally pastored in was part of Mennonite Church Canada. So there's a a conference of churches called Mennonite Church. It used to be called the General Conference of Mennonites. Now they just call Mennonite Church and then whatever country you're in. Mennonite Church Canada, Mennonite Church USA, Mennonite Church Zimbabwe, wherever that conference might exist. And I've been a pastor and currently am a pastor in the Conference of Mennonite Brethren Churches of which Jericho Ridge is a part. So... I have my credentials to be an ordained minister in uh, both of those conferences, actually. I also, though, have a uh, name and a familial heritage, a cultural link as a Mennonite. So, for example, if you were to read history about uh, certain Mennonite groups in South America or in Uh, Prussia a hundred years ago. um, You would find places where I could point and say my parents were there. You would find places where uh, I could point and say my grandparents and even by name are recorded in that history. And so my genealogy also gives me a place within the Mennonite culture. So you'd think that with my like street cred as a Mennonite, right? Like you got the last name Nickel. Like, come on. Those of you who have a Mennonite heritage, you know that that, that's almost as good as a last name like Friesen or I won't go through all of them. (laughs) Reimer. There's lots of them. Sawatsky. They're all there. But you'd think that with that and having gotten the training and the credentialing and jumping through all the hoops of ordination and all that, that I would be able to minister in pretty much any Mennonite conference around the world. But that's not always, that always wasn't the case, and it still is not necessarily always the case. So the two conferences I mentioned, Mennonite Church Canada, Conference of Mennonite Brethren, of which Jericho Ridge is a part, they used to be one. In 1860, they decided to become two. Now, they didn't split because they had huge theological differences, They're still both out of the Anabaptist tradition that came out of the Reformation. They still both believe the same basic gospel theology, but they be separated based on practice, primarily. How do we live out what we believe? In fact, today, because of that, we have over 20 different Mennonite, larger Mennonite conferences around the world. Again, not separate church groups because they believe something different about Jesus, but separate because they believe different, how to practice their faith in Jesus differently. What does that look like in the day-to-day and within the church community, in the cultures that they're a part of? So for me as a teenager in the 80s, when I became a Christian, I chose to, upon the confession of my faith, which is an Anabaptist Tenant, an Anabaptist principle that you're not baptized as an infant. You're baptized as as a person who can confess their faith uh, in Jesus Christ within the community. So I chose to become baptized within the church that I had started to attend as a teenager. That church happened to be in the Mennonite Church, or at that time General Conference, but we'll just call it Mennonite Church because that's what they call themselves now. And in when I said, hey. I believe in Jesus and I want to get baptized within that church tradition that meant that I would get baptized by pouring. Mennonite churches primarily don't have baptistries. We don't have one and we're well we're Mennonite brethren but we don't have one Uh, but they didn't go down to the river. I I grew up in southeast Vancouver we could have just gone down the hill uh, about 12 or 14 blocks and and gotten baptized in the Fraser River. I don't know how pleasant that would have been right there and If you've ever seen the Fraser River at that point where it comes out. Um, But we could have done that. We could have brought in a tank, which we have done here as well. But the tradition had been and still is primarily that of pouring. So the minister, you would kneel on the floor and the minister would, upon your confession of faith, baptize you, just scoop up some water or might have a jug and pour it on your head in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that was super meaningful um, for me. Now, at the same time, this is back in the 80s, in the Mennonite Brethren Church, if you chose to be baptized upon the confession of your faith, same theology upon the confession of your faith, based on the same Jesus, you would then be baptized by immersion, which is you walk into a body of water, or maybe a baptistry, or a river, or or a portable tank, and you get fully immersed. You get fully dunked under the water. In the years since 1860, when the two conferences were one and then separated, both the Mennonite Church and the Conference of Mennonite Brethren had developed strong views that their mode, their practice of baptism was biblical and the preferred way for them as a community. To the point, though, where their practices became entrenched as laws, to the point where their practices became a thing that symboled who's in and who's out. For example, my oldest brother, he's five years older than me, just a couple years before I came to faith, had come to faith and had wanted to be baptized by immersion in the Mennonite church where the tradition was pouring. Now, he was told at the time that that was the preferred way to do it and that if he didn't want to do it that way, then his faith was questioned to the point where what he was hearing as a a teenager was, oh, I don't belong here. And he heard that message, rightly or wrongly, because they didn't verbally communicate those exact words, but he received that message to the point where he said, Then I'm not going to be a part of that church. And for him, that led him down a path where he eventually said, I'm not going to be a part of that faith or any faith group whatsoever. As a teenager, he heard, You don't belong. I, on the other hand, come along a couple years later and ask for baptism within that same tradition. And uh, it didn't matter to me whether I was poured or immersed or whatever. And my uh, baptism was uh, profoundly meaningful to the point where I was welcomed in the community as a teenager, uh, it led me to go to Bible school Uh, It brought about a place in my life where I received a calling to go into the pastoral ministry. And then I actually got the, the privilege of going back to that same church in southeast Vancouver, where I had first come as a teenager, and I got to be a pastor there. And then I got to enjoy the tradition of baptizing a whole bunch of people with the practice of pouring upon the confession of their faith. The same time in the 1990s when I was doing that, some friends of mine who are now pastors in the MB church, gotta remember, Southeast Vancouver had a really high density of Mennonites living there in Southeast Vancouver. You had MC and MB churches within blocks and many of them, high concentration. So now I've got friends who are pastoring in MB churches and they're enjoying the privilege of baptizing people with immersion. We were practicing, both of the conferences practicing baptism based on the same theology, within the same neighborhood, trying to reach the people in the same places with the same gospel, all for the sake of the same Jesus. But in 1990, I would not have been allowed to be a pastor in the MB church. Even though some of us had gone to the same school to receive our training. In fact, a few years before that, if we go back a little bit further in history, I would not even have been allowed to be a member in the MB Church because I was not baptized by immersion, by that practice. Two closely related groups share an origin, share a faith, a theology, share a Jesus, had established human laws of belonging and consequently, I don't think intentionally, laws of separation. Now, we didn't call them that at the time. Nobody would have said, this is how we figure out who's in and who's out. We would have said, these are discerned practices We would have said these are things that leaders and and people that we trust have figured out along the way, and, and, and that's why we do them that way. Around things like baptism and communion was another issue, when and who could take communion. But what we didn't realize all the time was that we were creating practices of who's in and who's out. A larger church community preaching the same gospel message And yet we were divided, separated simply by practice. Now, ironically, my brother, if he had simply instead of walked the two blocks from our house to the church that he did walk to and walked a few more blocks in a different direction to a Mennonite Brethren church, he would have been welcomed because he wanted to be baptized by immersion. And if it was 1990 today, and we held the same practices, I would not be allowed to be one of your pastors. I would not be welcome to come and participate in this capacity. Now, please don't hear. You know it. Don't hear what I'm not saying. In no way is my point to disparage or to lift up one conference versus the other. I'm not trying to endorse anything in this in terms of practice. I'm simply pointing out that we have two very closely linked church traditions that had drawn human lines in the sand. In this case, around baptism, there's a lot of other things that we could talk about that harmfully said this is who's in this is who belongs in our group and this is who doesn't this is who belongs in our expression of the body of Christ and this is who doesn't now thankfully since then since the 90s both groups have had their own Uh, Again, separate, unfortunately. It might have been good to do it together. But they both have had their own processes of saying, do we need to reassess our practices? And they've both gone through um, times, communal times together that have been messy, that have been hard, that have been challenging, where not everybody across the nation, got along with everybody else in terms of opinion and views, and they went through this, prayer, uh, this uh, process of prayer and discernment to say, oh, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us as a group, the priesthood of all believers, and he's asking us to change our practices for the sake of the gospel. That's not always an easy thing to do. The bigger the group gets, and in this case we're talking national groups, uh, the harder it becomes. In fact, when the MBs were doing it, the conference was actually a shared conference in North America with the states as well. So the more people you add to that conversation, the more opinions, the more observations, the more insights, all those things come into play, and the longer that often takes. It's hard work. But it's worth it as witnessed by the fact that i can now be fully credentialed and be an ordained minister in either one of the conferences i can come and be your pastor one of your pastors i can move freely between the two conferences if i choose and if the church groups choose to call me that way and if you wanted to, walk into an MC church, a Mennonite Church, Canada church, and said, hey, I want to be baptized by immersion, they'd say, great, let's figure out. We don't have a baptistry, but we'll bring one in. We'll go to the river, and you'd be welcomed. So why tell a story and uncover some dirty laundry about our past? And, I, and it's a lot of my past, because I have passed in both conferences. Why would I talk about divisive practices in church tradition quite simply because it happened in my lifetime and some of you are older than me (laughs) not a lot but some (laughs) this happened just 35 years ago friends in our sophisticated advanced society imagine devout followers of Jesus highly educated leaders people that churches across the nation said, we want you to lead us. Succumbing to that temptation to put law over grace. Just as we're reading about in the book of Galatians that we're going through this fall. That letter was written 2,000 years ago. And here we are, I just gave you a long but personal example just 35 years ago facing the same temptations and the same wrestlings as the church community. Is it possible that we as a church today were 35 years more advanced than we were in 1990? Is it possible that even today we as a church might be tempted and succumb to the temptation to allow practices to divide the most precious group on earth, the bride, the body of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. It'll also come up on the screen. Paul is the author of Galatians. He's writing to the church in Galatia, which is in the area of the world that we now know as Turkey sort of in that area of, of the Mediterranean. Paul's writing, he's in the midst in chapter 1 and now in part of chapter 2, giving us sort of his ministry, uh, his salvation and ministry bio. He's, he's telling us he's got street cred in the, uh, in the Jewish world, just like I do in the Mennonite world. It's a big thing. Paul's reminding us of his cultural lineage. He's reminding us in chapter 1, hey, I've got what it takes to be a leader in the Jewish group, in the Jewish community. Like, there's no question about that. But then he writes Galatians and says, I'm going to throw all that aside. That's not the basis upon which I'm going to write to the church in Galatia. Paul has one focus for the Galatian church, and that's to bring the message of jesus christ the gospel message of salvation by grace for all into soul unifying focus for the church peter is out and he's preaching the same gospel to the jewish communities of the time that was his calling paul's out preaching it to the gentiles which are simply non-jews at That time in the world, you had Greeks, Romans, those would be Gentiles, and then you had the Jewish nation of Israel, and then you had some other. Anybody who was not part of the nation of Israel by lineage was a Gentile. And those are the people that Paul's talking to. Chapter 2, verse 1. So Paul's giving us his background, and we jump into the middle of it, and he says, 14 years later, I, Paul, I go back to Jerusalem again. So I've been out cruising the world, preaching the gospel of Jesus, uh, salvation by grace for anybody who believes. You don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to have all these certain credentials. You just have to believe in Jesus. He says, this time with Barnabas and Titus came along too down to Jerusalem. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them my message that I'd been preaching out to the Gentiles. Why? I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement. Unity. Unity of the church. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. I wanted to make sure that I was on the right path. I was preaching the the, the correct theology, the right gospel, what we, Paul and the other apostles, had discerned because of the revelation of who Jesus was and what he did on the cross. And those other apostles back in Jerusalem, they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. So in the 80s, for me, the issue was how were you baptized? Immersion, well, then you get to be in in certain places. Pouring, well, then you're in in certain other places. At Paul's time in the first century, for the Jews, the issue was circumcision, male circumcision. If you were going to be in, you could be in as a non-Jew, but you could only come in if you were circumcised, even as an adult. That was the issue for them. Verse 4, even that question came up only because of some so-called believers there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. Now think how easy it would have been for Paul, who was a Jew, who was circumcised, who was a leader in the Jewish community to say, "You know what, guys? Yeah, we should let's just do that." Cuz that's that's what I did. Verse 6. The leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favorites. Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the, same, to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work to the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I've always been eager to do. But when Peter shows up in Antioch, Paul says, I had to oppose him to his face. Uh Uh-oh, what's going on? For he did something very wrong. When Peter first arrived, he ate with the Gentiles. He associated with them, even though they were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of these other people's criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers looked at Peter as a leader, followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. So Peter has no problem theologically eating with Gentiles who are not circumcised until some friends show up who really have an issue with it still. And then he makes this selfish choice based out of fear that says, oh, well, I... I want to be in over here, so I'm, you guys are over there. And as an apostle, as a leader in the church, people looked to him, and then they thought, well, if Peter, the man we entrust as a leader, is willing to do that, then we should probably do that too. When Paul, verse 14, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow Jewish traditions? Sound familiar? Why, leader, are you asking this new believer to be baptized by immersion in order to be included within the fellowship of the body of Jesus? Why, church, are you saying to this person that they don't belong because they're not immersed? Why, Peter, are you trying to Have these believers follow Jewish tradition and custom when you yourself don't have to follow them anymore as a Jew because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, setting us free from the law. What we have happening in the first century is the same thing we had happening in the 80s and 90s case of tradition versus theology law versus gospel tradition these are my definitions I don't if you google them you probably won't find this tradition in my mind is the repetition of human practice based on belief when we keep doing something because we believe in it so much that we begin to forget sometimes why we're what we believe but we know what we practice and that's tradition dad why do we always do this well we just do it because that's how our family's always done it so suck it up kid and do it is what you're saying without saying it right and then you find out that the tradition was based on the fact that there was some really practical issue 50 years ago where somebody couldn't get a certain product and so they said well we're, we're just going to use this product instead and that's going to be our product and, but now that product do you, do you see where I'm going with that? And you have no sense of why we do this anymore other than we do it because it was important to my parents and it was important to their parents. And by the time you're grown up, it'll be important to you. Theology is the knowing of God based on his revelation to us and based on his practices as he reveals them to us. And when we track those two things, tradition and theology, in the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation, what we will find is that tradition and law are usually closely linked. And theology and grace, the knowing of God and grace, are usually closely connected in other words, what we're reading about in the book of Galatians is this ever-present tension, this ever-present human tension between law-based practices and grace-based theology. And let's be honest. Law is always easier for us as humans. Oh, you're like, oh, I don't, li- I don't like laws. When the speed limit says 60, I do 70 or 80. Well, maybe nine. No, no, I don't, we're not about laws. Friends, if you strip it down, we have a lot of laws because life is just easier and more comfortable if everybody obeys the laws. Sure, you do 80 in a 60 because you're a great driver, but you need the other people who are lousy drivers to do 60 so that they don't crash into you when you're speeding along at 80, right? Right? Law is much easier for us to comprehend and live by in society than grace. Even in the body of Christ, even in the church. And so Paul, same thing back then, so Paul has a face-to-face. He calls out Peter face-to-face and says, because of God's gracious revelation of himself in Jesus, we no longer believe that salvation comes because of the law of Moses the laws of the Old Testament you can't get to salvation by following the laws because Jesus showed up as a new revelation of who God was and he created new practices by the death and resurrection of the cross of him on the cross and so now we believe Peter That you attain salvation, you receive salvation as a gift of grace through Jesus Christ and in him alone. So in this case, Peter, you are wrong. I don't care if you're the apostle. I don't care if you're the one upon whom Jesus will build his church. I am telling you based on the gospel message, to your face, you are wrong. I can go sideways in a hurry. That can get messy. But Paul is saying, Peter, you have freedom. You don't have to succumb to this law anymore. You don't have to succumb to that peer pressure to belong anymore. Everyone who comes to Jesus now for salvation does so by grace. Welcomed into the family of God by grace. Jesus fulfilled all of those laws in the Old Testament. And because he fulfilled them perfectly, you no longer have to hold up. Did you know there's over 600 Old Testament Mosaic laws? And as a Jew, you had to keep them all if you wanted to be in a relationship with God, that holy God. As soon as you screwed up one, you may as well have screwed them all up. And then you have to go through the process of sacrificial repentance to get back, to be able to relate to the holy God. That's why Paul says later on in Galatians 3.28, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You cannot enter the body of Christ, the church, by keeping any law or human tradition. Being a devout Jew isn't going to get you salvation. You cannot belong based on how good you are, on your last name, on your Mennonite street cred, on your Jewish street cred. You just can't. So why, Peter, are you trying to put that on these people? Why are you trying to impose those laws that you have been set freed from and actually allow you, make you live like a Gentile because there's no Jew or Gentile anymore? You're like them now. Why are you trying to create the divide? And today, this argument over circumcision makes total sense to us, especially the men. We get it, we're thankful. The practice of circumcision today is done primarily for medical reasons or familial traditions. We no longer view circumcision as an entry point, an obligation, or a right that you have to perform to belong. Nobody asked you when you walked in the door this morning, did they? I hope not. So if we would never ask someone to be circumcised in order to belong to Jericho Ridge, does that mean that this whole Galatians 2 passage is kind of obsolete, lesson learned? No. Because what it does is it reveals for us and for every generation a systemic human tendency towards law. We gravitate towards law and away from grace. And so the book of Galatians is uh, preserved for the church because every generation, including ours, will wrestle with issues of law versus grace. Practice intention with theology. Don't think for a moment that we as Jericho Ridge can't be tempted to take a set of human traditions and practices and turn them into our own laws. And by doing that, say you belong and you don't. You practice and live like we do, so then you are in. If you don't, well. And we do it for the sake of comfort because it's easier that way. It's easier if we just all think and act the same, it's just easier to get along. And so we do it for selfish comfort. What's even worse or more insidious is when we take those laws and human practices and impose them on others for the sake of our own power. And don't think for a moment that we as your leaders, your staff and your elders and other leaders in the church are beyond that temptation. Power and control is insidious. And Paul reminds us, I read Galatians 2 saying, Oh Lord, where in my heart? What laws do I have? He's reminding us it's well within my sinful nature to do what's easier and self-centered rather than engaging in the difficult, in the messy, in the hard. Gathering of God's people and saying, what are you hearing the Holy Spirit say? What are you interpreting this scripture to mean? How does that work out in real life? What does that look like? And what if we don't agree? And what if there's only a few of us and we agree, but then we add a few more and then they're different? And what if someone stands up in the church and says, I think you're wrong because of the gospel of Jesus saying this. That's hard work as a church. It's way easier for us to just go and walk a few blocks to a different church and hope that they think and act like us. Church human practice never dictates God's truth. Never. And when it does, it will always divide the church. Always. People ask, why so many, you know, especially people who are not believers or not, not a part of a church, why so many churches? Why Catholics and Mennonites and Baptists and Presbyterians? And what, what, what's all that about? Galatians 2. Galatians 2. We refuse to have difficult conversations like Paul had with Peter. And the rest of the apostles. And say, hold on. Now, don't read what Paul's not writing. Paul's not coming out against God. Paul's not speaking out and altering the gospel message. His theology remains true and unwavering. Paul's speaking out against human practices being layered up and over the gospel message becoming a barrier between Jesus and the people. Friends, the Old Testament law was never meant to be a barrier keeping people away from God. It was meant as a means to allow a sinful person to be able to enter into the presence of a holy God. That was always the intention of the law. It was never meant to divide and separate It was intended to point point out to us that on our own, we really, as sinful people, can't get into the presence of God. He graciously gave us some laws to say, if you do these things, you can, but ultimately, you're going to need a Savior because you're not going to be able to keep all these laws. You're going to need a Savior who can do all of this for you once and for all. And that person came fully human, fully God, In Jesus Christ tempted in all ways that we would be tempted in but never sinning perfectly fulfilling the law that God required by dying on the cross for our sins and then rising again and proclaiming there is a new way there is a new covenant there's a new set of ground rules and the way that you come to the father The holy God is through Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus fulfilled all those requirements of the Old Testament law when he died on the cross and rose again and established that new way. And only through him. No laws. By grace. Romans 10, verses uh, 9 to Thirteen. That's the message. Again, this is Paul writing. That's the very message about faith that we preach. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that you are made right with God, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God, it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The text, friends, does not say everybody who is immersed by, as a, a form of baptism and then calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The text does not say that anyone who is circumcised and calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In fact, anyone who preaches or teaches ever teaches anything other than what the text says here is speaking heresy. Any requirement given to you above and beyond calling on the name of the Lord to be saved is heresy you are saved when you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross for you the perfect sacrifice and offers you a way by grace to access the holy God and you openly declare that with your mouth anything anyone else wants you to do in addition to that to be saved is heresy time for a face-to-face. And every generation, including ours, will be tempted to adopt practices, human traditions, human laws, human things, often with very good intention, and layer them above and cause a distortion of the gospel of Jesus. And in so doing, they mutilate the body of Christ. They mutilate it. Because the body of Christ is based on salvation by grace alone. We're not immune to that temptation, friends, at Jericho Ridge. We are not immune to thinking that church would just be better if, if more people came who thought like we do, who acted like we do. Is that really too much to ask, God? That more people like me (laughs) would come and allow Jericho to flourish and grow and be this amazing church? If there was just more of me, then it'd be everything I want it to be. growing in Paul's generation. And some of the leaders succumbed to that temptation of wanting it to grow the way they wanted it to grow so that they would be comfortable. They wanted it to grow their way. And so the Apostle Paul puts his reputation, his life on the line for the sake of the gospel. And he didn't just do it in Galatia. He did it everywhere he went. We can read in Ephesians, uh, for the church in Ephesus, chapter 2. But now Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Gentile and Jews, into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments. So then you are no longer strangers. And aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints, your part of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, the whole church, the people, being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you, church, are being built together into a dwelling of God's Spirit chapter 4 in Ephesians. Therefore, Paul says, I beg you, I'm begging, lead a life worthy of this calling that you've been called by God for. Always be humble, gentle. Be patient with each other. Make allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Don't just walk down the road to the next church. For there's one body, one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all, in all, living through all, and he's given each one of us grace, the gift of grace through the generosity of Christ. As the worship team comes up, and they're going to start to play and we're going to close off with a couple songs and the prayer team's going to head to the back and be available for you to pray with. Let me just close with just as in Paul's time, God is still building his church. He is still growing his church. I believe that. He is growing Jericho Ridge as part of his church. But friends, I cannot and I refuse to try to predict to you who he is adding. I cannot tell you their last names. I can't tell you what they're gonna look like. I don't know if they were baptized by immersion or pouring or maybe they're not baptized at all yet. I don't know if they're circumcised and I don't wanna know. (laughs) I don't know if they eat kosher foods or if they're vegans or maybe there's some similarities there, I'm not sure. I don't know if they practice yoga or practice Lectio Divina on Thursday nights at Meg's house. What night? Tuesdays. (laughs) Ah, So close. I don't know what their financial priorities are and whether or not they're ever gonna give to a capital campaign. I have no idea what the gifts are that they're gonna bring into our midst and I have no idea what the brokenness is that they will bring into our presence. But this I know with absolute certainty that every person that God is adding to his church as he grows it will come into our doors and into the presence of the community here at Jericho Ridge, and they will be living imperfect lives with imperfect thoughts, with faulty practices. And every single one of them will be a sinner. Saved by the grace of Jesus Christ who is still at work perfecting them into his image. And I know that because that's who he added when he added me. And you. That's what it's about when God is growing his church that's the gospel message and that is what we have to stand on as jericho ridge community church united unwavering that jesus and jesus alone offers salvation by grace and a way to come into community with a holy god